Chapter Twenty Seven of That Affair at Portstead Manor by Gladys Edson Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Off for the Continent. Months had passed, and Mr. Clavering was lunching at Claridge's with Mercedes Quero. He had formed a kind of Boswell Johnson friendship with the young detective, whose fame had been enhanced by the Portstead Manor case. She still sometimes yielded to the temptation of making merry at his expense, but on the whole, as she appreciated his sterling qualities, she was kind to him, and when in a particularly gracious mood, would listen to the laborious theories he propounded apropos the cases she was engaged upon. Born and bred a gentlewoman, a sudden turn of fortune had thrown her upon her own resources, and as her life since had been lonely, her profession precluding her from former friendships, she was probably grateful for the honest admiration of this very estimable gentleman. A quiet little wedding, which Mr. Clavering had attended in Belgrave Square that morning, had brought to the minds of both the tragedy at Portstead Manor, and Mr. Clavering again expressed his wonderment at the detective's cleverness in discovering the guilty person. "'Why, it was all so simple,' she deprecated lightly, "'that I am surprised that even Burton failed to guess the truth.' I always work through the process of elimination, and it was particularly successful in this case. I studied singly the three suspects, Lord Meldrum, Robert Sylvester, and Lady Ursula, all of whom had equal motive and opportunity. It was clear from the first that Lady Ursula suspected Lord Meldrum, and so I at once eliminated her, for, of course, her suspicion proved her innocence. Then, when Robert Sylvester appeared, I soon discovered by the same reasoning that he too was innocent. He suspected his sister. There remained then Lord Meldrum, and his innocence was equally clear. He suspected Robert, but was generous enough to let suspicion rest on himself in order to save the boy for Lady Ursula's sake. After I had eliminated these three, I endeavoured to reconstruct in my mind the scene that took place in the library at 2 a.m. From my investigations, as I have said, I knew pretty accurately the whereabouts of every member of the household at that hour. I took especial pains to inquire about Harry Brooks, but I learned from two of the servants, who had been kept awake by him, that he had spent the hours from midnight until the shot occurred, pacing his room unceasingly. I next considered the possibility of Elena's guilt. I knew that she was of a violent nature, and it was likely that her intense devotion to Lady Ursula would make her bitter and resentful toward the Earl. No one could know better than she the bondage under which he held his sister. The more I studied Elena, the more convinced I became of her guilt. But, granting that she had motive, how was I to prove her presence in the library at two o'clock? I began by questioning Elsie Baring. I had always felt that she was withholding information, and that her importance as a witness had been very much disregarded. I was more successful than I had expected. When I made her realize that I was not trying to incriminate Robert, I found her surprisingly communicative. As her room was next to Lady Ursula's, she had been awakened by the Earl when he came to call his sister into the library. From the tone of his voice, she knew that he was in an unpleasant humor. Fearing that Robert was the cause, she became so nervous and worried that she was unable to sleep. She heard Lady Ursula return to her room and for over an hour sob and moan. Miss Baring was about to go to her when she heard her unlock her door and hurry down the corridor. Anxiety prompted Miss Baring to follow her, and she saw her go into Robert's room, come out immediately with something in her hand, 
which she suspected was Robert's pistol, and then go up the stairs into the north wing. You see, Mr. Clavering, Lady Ursula knew well where her brother kept his pistol. She was in the habit of lending it to Lord Meldrum when he went on his night missions for her. He did not possess one of his own until the day after the murder, when he sent up to London for it. So he told the truth at the inquest when he stated that Robert's pistol had been in his possession, though, of course, his refusal to answer whether it had been in his possession on the night in question was intended to divert suspicion from Robert to himself. To come back now to Miss Baring. After she saw Lady Ursula vanish into the north wing, she became so fearful of what might happen that she lingered about the stairs, expecting some tragedy, and yet not daring to follow Lady Ursula further. It was from the hall window that she beheld Robert Sylvester return to the manor. Lady Ursula remained in the north wing about a quarter of an hour, and then she came down, accompanied by Elena, whose existence Miss Baring had never before suspected. Neither Lady Ursula nor Elena noticed Miss Baring, who was hiding behind the tapestry which lines the walls of the corridor, and they hurried down the circular stairs into the library. Miss Baring crept after them, and from the head of the stairs heard the voices of Robert and the Earl. Robert was in a passion. Then she heard Lady Ursula pleading for Robert, and the Earl sarcastically and cruelly upbraided her. Miss Baring crept far enough down the stairs to see that the library was in darkness, and that a man was entering by the garden doorway, whom she recognized by his voice, when the Earl taxed him with the theft of the government papers, as Lord Meldrum. Of what happened next she had only a confused notion. There were bitter recriminations, and suddenly a shot rang out. She had no idea who fired it, and remembered only rushing up to her own room and locking herself in. But she suspected either Robert or Lord Meldrum, for she believed that Lady Ursula had given the pistol to one or the other. I made a diagram of the library, and the probable positions of those present at the time of the shot, in order to understand how it was possible for three people to suspect one another. I decided that the Earl was standing in the centre of the room, Lady Ursula at the foot of the circular stairs, Robert between her and the Earl, and Lord Meldrum by the garden doorway, since Robert knew that the shot came from the circular stairs, and it did not occur to him to suspect Lord Meldrum. Lady Ursula was too overwrought to have any idea of the direction whence the shot came, and I doubt if she could even have told where Lord Meldrum was standing. But as she had been in the habit of going down the circular stairs to give the pistol to him, I believe that in her terror and bewilderment she thought she had done so this night. Such cases of mental suggestion through terror are not uncommon, and Lord Meldrum subsequently said nothing to disprove her belief. Miss Baring has stated that Elena remained standing on one of the spirals of the staircase, and I believe that no one in the library, save Lady Ursula, knew of her presence. In the confusion following the shot, she must have escaped into the north wing unnoticed. Robert, in his horror at what he believed his sister's act, fled from the manor, and Lord Meldrum went in pursuit of him. But he soon turned back, probably to stand by Lady Ursula, or possibly he had some half-formed idea of shouldering for her sake what he believed to be Robert's responsibility. He could not have known then that the shot was fatal. You will remember his exclamation when he came into the library and saw the Earl stretched upon the floor. My God, he is dead! In the meantime, Lady Ursula, obeying mad impulse, had rushed from the library, 
locking the door after her, and fled into the front of the manor. Elena must have come down later, after the coroner had gone, and hidden the pistol behind the cushion of the chair where I found it. Now, Mr. Clavering, I think I have explained everything as far as I can. It was a deplorable tragedy, said he with a deep sigh, but at least it has made a man of Robert Sylvester, and I believe he will do well in the government secretaryship Lord Meldrum has procured for him. I believe he will, assented Mercedes Quero. And now, Mr. Clavering, consulting her tiny silver watch, if you intend to reach Charing Cross in time to see Lord Meldrum and Lady Ursula off for the continent, you must call a taxicab, and at once a hansom will never get you there. Mr. Clavering rose in a flurry. Will you not see them off, too? She shook her head. No, my presence would only bring back unpleasant memories to Lady Ursula. But they have my best wishes for a very happy tour. They are to be gone two years, I think you said? Two years, responded Mr. Clavering gloomily. He would miss Meldrum at the clubs. He shook hands gravely with the detective, apologized for leaving her so abruptly, arranged for another little lunch in the near future, and stepping into a taxicab, much as he disliked them, was soon whirled to Charing Cross. As he flurriedly made his way through the great station to the Continental train, he beheld Lady Ursula, tall and elegant in her dark travelling suit, the centre of a little group composed of Robert, Elsie Baring, and Lady Pevensey. The latter was kissing her effusively. At the window of a first-class compartment he saw the red hair and elfish face of Mavis. The child was greedily nibbling chocolates and beaming down at Lord Meldrum, who was talking to her from the platform. Meldrum turned as Mr. Clavering approached. "'By George, old chap!' he cried jovially. "'I thought you were going to be late for the first time in your life.' Lady Ursula detached herself from the little group and came toward Mr. Clavering with hand outstretched. "'Wilford doesn't tell you,' she smiled, "'that he almost made us late because he would stop to buy Mavis more candies. He is spoiling the child and ruining her digestion.' Meldrum laughed boyishly. "'Oh, I'll do better in a few days, Ursula. You'll have to make allowances for a while. I'm so awfully happy, you know.' She smiled into his glowing face. "'So am I awfully happy, Wilford,' and her slim gloved hand sought his a moment. Just then the guards blew their whistles. Robert threw his arms about Lady Ursula and gave her several loud, boyish kisses. "'Good-bye, and best happiness, you dearest of sisters!' Lady Ursula clung to him fondly. "'Don't forget, Robin, that you and Elsie have promised to spend part of your honeymoon with us.' "'That we won't,' he answered with a choke in his voice as he helped her aboard the train. Then he turned and wrung Lord Meldrum's hand. "'Good-bye, Mel, old chap. Keep Ursula smiling.' Mr. Clavering was beginning to feel strangely downhearted when Lord Meldrum caught his hand in a warm grip that crushed. Two years is a long time away from old England and old friends,' he said in a husky voice. "'You'll not fail to join us in Germany at Christmas, eh, Clavering, dear boy?' The carriage doors were slamming. Lord Meldrum sprang aboard, and Mr. Clavering, with a sudden tightening of the throat, stood gazing after the departing train and the blonde head leaning from the window. Lady Pevensey touched him on the arm. "'Come back to my flat, Archibald,' she said with a little sniff. "'We'll have tea and play piquet.' End of chapter 27 End of That Affair at Portstead Manor by Gladys Edson Locke